So Peter, how many how many cheesesteaks are you gonna eat when you come out here? Uh, how many meals am I gonna have? Let's see. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> multiply it by two. <laughs> yeah, and multiply it by two, and that's how many cheesesteaks I'm gonna have. Two for each meal, all day, every day, for all week okay. long, from from Wednesday morning until Saturday morning. So that's all right. a lot of cheesesteaks. Well, I'll, I'll get I, the list ready. I, I don't recall getting one the last time I was there. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and boys, I need to start out season four with a confession. Well, what have you been up to? (laughs) Lay it on us. You may know me, or think you know me, as your beloved and humble co-host, but the truth is that it's all been an act. This whole time, I've really been working for the State Department to influence world culture and promote capitalist interest via podcasting. Oh, like Jackson Pollock? Like many proud artists before me, yes. I'm sorry I didn't drop this info earlier. I would have told you sooner, but I was obviously very worried about getting in trouble with the man. So you've been getting CIA money and you didn't even buy me a cool motorcycle or something? I couldn't, I couldn't tell anyone. I had to keep it a secret, you know, for many, many reasons. But thankfully, while we were on break, I received a memo that there's actually no longer any need for pretense since there's actually nothing anyone can do to stop them at this point. Oh. This is a very weird intro, Sean. Yeah. I just yep. want you guys to know we can be totally honest now. All Maybe right. Maybe working for the State Department, but I can at least talk about it. Does this connect at all to what we came to talk about today? We'll have to find out. Are there any other co-hosts that want to talk about a record with me? I don't know. I didn't know I was working for the State Department. Now I <laughs> I might have to retire from the podcast right now. I'll, I'll go ahead and, yeah, I'm co-host Jeremy. Just give it one more episode. I'll give it one more try. I'll give it one more season, see how things go. Go from there. Season four, and I'm glad that we have whales still. I just want to thank our artist today, Paul Winter, for saving the whales so that we can enjoy them. Big ups. Big ups. Oh, that's what he did. I can't even tell if I'm being sarcastic or earnest. (laughs) Well, I am co-host Peter, and after Sean's revelation, I might actually just be running away to California like I promised to do at the end of season three after all. But in the meantime... You really threw us off our game with that one, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe I should have told you like before we started recording. I'm really just... I messed up the rhythm. Yeah, just, I, couldn't, I couldn't live in the lie any longer, <laughs> you know? It's like a lawnmower that's been sitting in the garage all winter and it's kind of got a rough start going now. <laughs> Well, while I'm working all this out in my head, could you guys help me find a connection between former Beatle Paul McCartney and jazz oboist Paul McCandless? Their names rhyme with ball. (laughs) Oh, there. Well, I should have just thought of that myself. I should have asked Sean if he plans to talk about the players and the producer on this album, but I imagine he does. I will be talking about that and many, many more things on today's selection. Paul Winter and the Winter Consort, Icarus from 1972, which is a a significant year. 1972, that's, that's 50 years ago. Exactly, 50 years to the year. And uh, are we going to talk about other 1972 records later this month? That's all we're going to talk about this month. Yeah, for the month of October, 
for the launch of season four. We are strictly talking about albums from 1972, which is a landmark year in music. I'm going to name just a a few albums that you might be familiar with from that year. Albums like David Bowie, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, The Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street, Yes, Close to the Edge, Aretha Franklin, Young, Gifted, and Black, The Allman Brothers Band, Eat a Peach, Al Green, Let's Stay Together, Big Star, Number One Record, Neil Young, Harvest, Curtis Mayfield, Superfly, Lou Reed, Transformer, Nick Drake, Pink Moon, Stevie Wonder, Talking Book, Roxy Music, Self-Titled, Can, Ege Bamiyasi, Joni Mitchell, For the Roses, Randy Newman, Sail Away, Bill Withers, Still Bill, Towns Van Zant, The Late Great Towns Van Zant, Gentle Giant, Octopus, Deep Purple, Machine Head, Jethro Tull, Thick as a Brick, Todd Rundgren, Something, Anything, Black Sabbath, Volume 4, Paul Simon, Self-Titled, and that's just scratching the surface. Yowza. Wow. But we are not going to be talking about any of those albums this month. That's got to be the heaviest list we've ever dropped in this podcast. <laughs> I almost held back and then I was like, maybe I should just name like six of these. And then I went, no, just go for it. Just go for it. Love it. Build the the context here. Build the world that these obscure albums we're going to talk about existed in. Yeah, I, I spared Jeremy the Steely Dan album that came out that year. Thank you. Look it up yourselves, listener. But yeah, we're going to be focusing on, those are some of the, the major ones that dropped that you're probably, you as a listener and a lover of music are probably familiar with several of those, but we're going to do a few that went under the radar this month, or at least aren't quite as celebrated by the general public as a lot of those releases are. And Sean, you're up first. I'm up first, kicking off season four with this Paul Winter record, and let's just hear a track before we start talking about it. Yeah, what are we going to hear? We're starting off first needle drop of season four, side A, track one, title track, Icarus. Sean. Yes. Since you're the one who's leading the charge on this episode, maybe you found the answer in your research. Well, I hope so. Was to my question here. <laughs> is this classical or is this jazz? What is this? Is this chamber music? 
Well, there was a handful of genre tags that were applied to it when it came out, but in retrospect, most people consider this to be one of the first albums in what would be known as the world music genre. <gasps> this is world music. Yes. The term world music being a kind of inherently problematic genre anyways. And we can get into that a little bit. It's things we've kind of talked about before on uh, new age adjacent records that we've covered. Yeah. Exotica. <laughs> mm -hmm, exactly. But the intention here was that this was a group comprised of pretty much all multi-instrumentalists that were fairly cultured and already had strong interests in genres from all around the world and folk music traditions of other countries. And the idea was to create this new form of music that was just a, a synthesis of different elements from all over the place. That's the result here. And a lot of artists took this record specifically as a major inspiration to furthering this kind of cultural boiling pot of a genre. And what year was this? Just kidding. <laughs> I was about to answer you. <laughs> Very cool, though. Yeah, I uh, didn't know anything about this record when you said that this was going to be your pick, your 1972 selection. And I put it on while I was at work just doing stuff, and suddenly I'm hearing sitars. I think there were sitars in there. Mm -hmm. And not in the song we just listened to, but in, in some of the selections. Just the things I wasn't expecting, not really knowing anything about it. Yeah, there's a there's a lot happening here. And it's also interesting how much of a classical music influence there really is going on as well. That in and of itself is, I think, kind of unexpected to hear in a record that looks like this and has the reputation that it does. A friend of mine overheard me previewing this record this week and said, oh, this must be a Peter pick. Oh. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I'll say it's if I... I would have definitely brought this if I had known about it, but for some reason, Paul Winter, just oblivious. Sounds like a blues rock name to me for some reason. Well, it's, yeah, like Johnny Winter. Oh, maybe that's why. Okay. Yeah. And his brother, Edgar Winter. Yeah. And the forgotten brother, Paul. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the third hippie brother, the black sheep of the family, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> He wasn't albino, so he was the outcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, actually, though, Peter, it's kind of shocking to me that I never played this record for you before, because this is one of those albums that I have recommended to so many people throughout the years of being a record store manager and record seller. So I feel like I should have hyped you to this record at some point. I don't know why I didn't. It's weird that it never came up. I mean... I, you know, there's a lot of records out there to talk about. <laughs> it's <laughs> That's some, very, very true. And we've talked about a lot of them. but And, you know, for all I know, this did come up, and I just, it was one of the days I didn't listen to you. and, and I, <laughs> But I'm, I'm here now to hear it, Sean, and I'm loving it. Perfect. Making all things right with this episode. Jeremy, how many times did you listen to this record? Twice in my whole life. <laughs> Both of those times have been fairly recent, I would assume. Both of those times are in the past week. And what'd you think? Um, There are parts that were interesting to me. I didn't like any time an oboe came in, which was pretty often. <laughs> uh, but that's just like a personal, I just don't like how that instrument sounds. But interesting. How many other instruments do you have a natural aversion to? The voice of children in large numbers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Oboes. That's all I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, uh, harpsichord, those... right? You're not a harpsichord fan? Oh, yeah. I'm not big in harpsichord either. Okay. The big Which three for Jeremy. Yeah. Might explain his dislike of both uh, the kinks and what we've termed Renfair music. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not surprised that this wasn't entirely your cup of tea. A lot of this record reminds me in a kind of, especially tonal way, to the Beaver and Krause record that we covered last Halloween. And I know you were not a fan of that, even the like folk 
type songs on it. So not surprised, but that's okay. Yeah, I didn't actively dislike it, but it didn't pull me in very much. I won't lie. Well, I I think parts of the story might pull you in, though. So, ooh, yeah, don't leave. (laughs) I was surprised just by the diversity of the record. It's kind of all over the place, yet has a it still has a consistent tone while stylistically jumping around. Mm Mm-hmm. And one another question I wanted to ask both of you. So, as we said. This album is commonly associated with early New Age, world music, and jazz fusion. It definitely has ripples that can be felt on all three of those. How do you think it compares to previously featured albums in those fields? Uh, The list being Paul Horn, Weather Report, Lucia Huang, The Environment Series, and Stephen Halpern. I didn't really find there to musically be much connection to any of those records for me as far as I didn't really think like this reminds me of this record or that record when I did a little bit of reading about it it reminded me more of some of the uh, previous albums we've touched on and maybe even the environment series yeah that's what's interesting to me about the whole you know new age world music movement is so many of the fundamental albums kind of sound nothing alike it's it's an interesting subgenre in that regard for sure yeah, I mean, it's you could even take the kind of approach of if you think of like punk music, there's so many different variations of that that were all you know starting to come together in the late 70s, early 80s. And some <laughs> there's so many different versions of that. And it's a lot of time it's more the attitude than anything else that's the connection less than the musical. And maybe the same could be said of these early new age records. Yeah. It's all about that new age attitude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> attitude. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to I'm going to kick things off here with some early bio for the great Paul Winter. And then we'll keep on going from there. Paul Winter was born on August 31st, 1939 in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Ooh. Pennsylvania. That's where you are, Sean. For those that don't know, Altoona. Altoona is like central PA, kind of a small mountain town. Yeah. So growing up, he studied clarinet and piano and then fell in love with the saxophone in the fourth grade. During grade school, he played... Saxophone. The saxophone. During grade school, he played in a German folk band, a Dixieland group, and a nine-piece dance band called the Silverliners. He graduated from Altoona High School in 1957 and spent the following summer touring with the Ringling Brothers Circus Band. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's unexpected. (laughs) So, yeah, he's a a recent high school graduate and already has kind of a shockingly wide range of working experience within the music industry. And none of them point in the direction of what we just heard. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But just keep that in mind. He's a man with... A deep background in variety, if nothing else. No, my first question when I heard this album was, did this guy work for Ringling Brothers? <laughs> <laughs> it all fits now. To be fair, that is what I ask myself whenever I hear one of Peter's Renfair musics. <laughs> <laughs> did these guys work for Ringling Brothers? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you just wait for my 1972 selection, Jeremy. Can't wait. It's, it's, so excited. It's coming. Foreshadowing. I've I've wait I've been holding off for several seasons on this. <laughs> coming in hot. It's finally ready. Yep. All right. Back to Paul Winter. After graduating high school, he attended college at Northwestern University, which is located just north of Chicago. During this time, he frequented jazz clubs in the Chicago area and also put together his own jazz combo. In 1961, that group won the Intercollegiate Jazz Festival Battle of the Bands. Their prize for winning was a record deal with none other than Columbia Records, and their debut album was produced by legendary producer John Hammond. Wow. That's quite a prize. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. This wasn't just your run-of-the-mill contest. No, not at all. I will say, though, that it does seem 
like Columbia put little to no effort into promoting this first record. There's like no real sales history. There's not a lot of pressings available and copies are nearly impossible to find. So I imagine it was probably intended to be kind of a token contract. Like we're going to do this as cheaply as possible and not actually put any effort into it. Perfunctory. Mm -hmm. So after graduating from Northwestern, Paul was accepted at the university of Virginia school of law as it seemed at this point that his music career had stalled the, you know, they got this Columbia record deal that I'm sure they were extremely excited for. And then quickly realized, Oh, this is uh, not actually a career or going to make us any money. And with that, we're going to take a break from the bio and listen to another song. Ooh, what's next? Up next is another Ralph Towner composition. He wrote the first song, Icarus, that we heard. And this one is called The Silence of a Candle. This is side A, track three. This is the song with the most vocals in it of the whole album. The words of fools about my ears To hasten by the years The journey that I made Through myself The travelers that passed by me As I went my way All reaching out to say The path can find the way Answers everywhere Promising solution to my fears Leading through halls With no doors in the walls And leave me in the darkness But to close my ears to all by the way for those who travel through I mentioned that this record reminds me of All Good Men by Beaver and Krause, and it's really that song specifically. There's something about the understated vocal delivery of it that reminds me exactly of the the vocal styles on the Beaver and Krause record. Yeah, that we covered last season. Yes, for Halloween. Yeah. A, I was surprised when vocals came in on this record. I wasn't expecting that. And B, yeah, if there's a connection to that album, that that would definitely be it. One of the things I really love about this record is that it it really draws you in. It's a it's a whole vibe, you know? It creates its own universe and you kind of have to live in it to really appreciate this record in a way. You know, from the opening song and then it continually takes these kind of unexpected paths, but it all still seems to fit within the the universe of this record in my opinion. Maybe maybe that's just me. Maybe I just forgot to walk through that door. Yeah. In Nepal's universe. Yeah. Speaking of unexpected paths, are we about to take a turn here? That's right. I gave my beloved co-host the warning, but now I extend this warning to the listeners. We're taking a hard left in the bio. It's going to not make sense for a minute, but I'm going to tie it back together. Don't worry. Hang in there. I'm going to start with a question for my co-hosts. How much do you guys know about Bossa Nova? You almost sounded like Nardwar there. (laughs) (laughs) But to answer your question, you know, that's a a genre that I could use to learn more about. I I know some of the very obvious touchstones of it, like the girl from Impanema Mm -hmm. and Sergio Mendez. Is that Bossa Nova? (laughs) (laughs) It's certainly influenced by it, yeah. But I could, I could use to know more. 
I know what Peter knows minus like five to ten percent probably. <laughs> but you're the one that did all the Chico Barque research. I thought you would be more familiar. You would think that, wouldn't you? <laughs> it's it's funny because I got way more into the Tropicalia stuff from Brazil, the psychedelic uh, music. Yes. More of the late sixties kind of post Bossa Nova craze. Yeah. All right. Well, you guys are in luck because I'm going to give you a brief rundown on the history of Bossa Nova and some of the uh, geopolitical history of South America and U.S. relations during that time. So let's dig into it real quick. We're keeping us under an hour, right? (laughs) I'm going to try. (laughs) Oh, boy. So in the early 20th century, Afro-American communities were creating the style of music known as jazz. Around the same time, Afro-Brazilian communities near Rio de Janeiro were adapting folk music traditions into a new style called samba. Fast forward to the 1950s, and both styles have become deeply ingrained in their respective cultures. Multiple subgenres have evolved, such as bebop, cool jazz, and in Brazil, bossa nova. In 1959, João Gilberto released the album Chega de Saudade, which is considered one of the first pure Bossa Nova albums. Also in 1959, Fidel Castro became the leader of Cuba following the completion of the Cuban Revolution. American government and business interests become terrified of more revolutions happening in Latin America. By 1961, Bossa Nova music has exploded in popularity, led by superstars like Antonio Carlos Jobim and the aforementioned Joao Gilberto. Updates to the rhythms and structure of traditional samba music have made bossa nova highly compatible with recent jazz trends in the States. Some U.S. DJs have begun playing bossa nova records, and it quickly becomes apparent that there is a market for this new musical import. Also in 1961, Brazil's new leader, Janio Quadros, begins making some major changes, attempting to modernize the country's economy. This includes distancing relations with the U.S. As a result, other Latin American countries begin following suit. These moves put the CIA and the State Department on edge. One of their seemingly more benign responses was to organize a 12-week goodwill tour as a cultural exchange program. Yeah, I think it's important to note that these changes in Latin American countries were socialist in nature. (laughs) That is important to note. (laughs) It was a big part of the U.S. terror of these new developments. Yeah, it's not that, like, fascists were getting control or something. They were worried because socialists were getting control. Mm Mm-hmm. You can trust the communists to be communists. (laughs) And that's just bad for business over here in the States. (laughs) My grandfather had a book with that title on his bookshelf. (laughs) Okay. I'm sitting here shrugging my shoulders like, I don't know what that means, Peter, but okay. (laughs) Okay, so this first cultural exchange program, Goodwill Tour, takes place in 1961 and featured jazz musicians like Charlie Bird, Kenny Dorham, Zoot Sims, Ahmed Abdul-Malik, and the international sex god himself, Herbie Mann. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, make sure we emphasize that. Yeah, as he's known. You know, we got to give him his proper here. When these musicians returned to the States, they immediately began recording albums with a bossa nova influence. The tour was such a success that the State Department quickly organized a follow-up, this time six-month-long tour, performing 160 concerts in 23 countries. This tour, again, featured Herbie Mann, but this time along with a young up-and-coming group, the Paul Winter Sextet. Oh, and Herbie Mann's like, you guys can't be a sextet, I'm a sextet. (laughs) I believe that was exactly how their first interaction went with the great Herbie Mann. (laughs) It's all factual. Paul Winter had heard about the first tour and approached the State Department to see if they needed any more bands to send overseas. This was possibly a last-ditch effort to launch a music career before becoming a lawyer, as we had mentioned. They had stated that 
they didn't really expect this to work. They had applied at the State Department and were told to submit a demo, so they quickly went and recorded a cheap demo and sent it in and forgot about it. And then before they know it, they get <laughs> reply that's like, okay, you're hired. We're sending you to South America for six months. <laughs> Obviously, the law career was then put on indefinite hiatus. For the remainder of the episode, can you refer to him as aspiring lawyer and CIA asset Paul Winter? <laughs> Deal. In addition to being in the right place at the right time, the sextet had the added bonus of being a multiracial group. The thought was that this might help combat the perception that America was not doing well with race relations and civil rights at the time. Yeah. Early 1960s. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not the greatest time for, uh, for those fields. The second tour was also a great success. While on the road, Herbie Mann recorded the album Do the Bossa Nova with Herbie Mann. This was one of the first albums recorded in Brazil by a U.S. artist. Paul Winter, during the tour, became enthralled with Latin American culture. The experience had a major impact on the direction of his music. The quiet restraint of Bossa Nova was a shift from the bebop and big band styles that he had been more used to previously. Concerts on the tour were usually attended by a host from the U.S. Embassy, and Paul remembers often being told, you guys did more in one night than we could in a year, because everything that we do is considered propaganda. Wow, that, <laughs> that gives me so many mixed feelings about this Exactly, guy. yeah. I mean, he seems kind of oblivious to how insidious this whole thing really is, though. Like his, his memories of it and often how this is described is just like a simple, like, oh yeah, he got to go on this goodwill tour and it was great. And everybody had a good time and nothing bad happened, which I'm reading all these watered down retellings and like short retellings of the story. I was like, there's gotta be something else happening here. Try to do a little extra digging for you guys. Aww. <laughs> By the end of 1962, Bossa Nova has become a full blown cultural phenomenon in the U S this wave reached its peak with 1964's Gets Gilberto and its massive hit, The Girl from Ipanema. Hey, that's the thing I knew about. Yeah. Also in 1964, the United States backed a military coup that overthrew Brazil's leftist government and plunged the country into decades of chaos. And fascism. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so there was this brief window of this kind of beautiful cultural explosion in brazil of you know these new genres are happening and everything's exciting and then the u.s just came and fucked it all up for a long time as we do and uh as we mentioned some of the cultural impact of this is covered in jeremy's chico buarque episode and a lot of the the genres that develop in the later 60s have a much more political angle to them uh, which is you know definitely mirrored in a lot of the genres that were happening in America at the same time. There's a lot of parallels between the civil rights movement and things that were happening in Brazil around the same time. Upon returning to the U.S., the Paul Winter Sextet was invited by Jackie Kennedy to perform at the White House. The concert took place on November 19, 1962, and unbeknownst to the group, was actually the first ever jazz concert at the White House. Dang, leave it yeah. up to the Kennedys, right? <laughs> Those hipsters. Mm-hmm. The group also released the album Jazz Meets the Bossa Nova in 1962 and continued releasing albums for Columbia into the mid-60s, including 1964's Jazz Meets the Folk Song. In 1965, Paul Winter returned to Brazil and lived there for a year. He recorded several albums during this time. In 1967, he formed the Paul Winter Consort. The music was heavily influenced by Brazilian composer Hator Villa-Lobos, and the name comes from English Elizabethan theater of the 16th and 17th centuries, when bands were combining woodwind, strings, and percussion, the same families of instruments that he wanted to use in his contemporary consort. The group combined a wide range of genres, as we said, jazz, classical, folk, and traditional music from around the world. 
Improvisation was a big part of their sound as well. For a long time, every concert featured a portion where all the lights would be turned off and the group would improvise music without any visual cues. This was often considered the highlight of their performances. I'm smirking. (laughs) Why are you smirking? Because I have a hard time imagining that being a highlight of a performance. Well, you don't think that'd be cool? Have all the lights turned off and hear some cool improvised music? If I was in college and had just partaken in a jazz cigarette, I might think that's cool. Exactly. You got to read the room here. (laughs) There's some moments on this record that sound like that. Yeah, there's definitely improvisational elements on pretty much all of their records. A lot of the songs are written out, but there's sections that are improvised, and some songs are more improvisational than others. I remember watching a art film in college that had a really abrasive soundtrack to it that sounded like some of the more out there moments on this record and the teacher gave like a pre-apology to the class this is like a really artsy kind of soundtracks (laughs) and i'm sitting there like this is awesome (laughs) this is what i the kind of music i hear my friends go make on weekends (laughs) no warning needed for young peter no no i i probably had a jazz cigarette before (laughs) class So the Winter Consort's first few albums on A&M were unsuccessful and inconsistent, but still showed promise. By 1970, the group had finally hit its stride, thanks in large part to the new lineup of guitarist Ralph Towner, percussionist and sitarist Colin Walcott, horn player Paul McCandless, and cellist David Darling. After 1970's live album The Road, which is also a very good album, the new lineup began working with super producer Sir George Martin. (gasps) the Beatles producer? Yeah, and the Beatles are broken up at this point, so he needs a new group to work with. Well, well, Sean, you just mentioned Paul McCandless, too. You found my connection that I asked for at the beginning of the episode. (laughs) We found it. Paul McCartney and... (laughs) Between Paul McCartney and Paul McCandless. There it is. I'm so happy. Episode over. (laughs) Episode over. Thanks, everyone. (laughs) So one of George's big contributions to this is that instead of recording in his studio, he suggested that they work out of a secluded cabin to get more of a natural feel. The result is the masterpiece that we are listening to today, Icarus. Also, it must be noted that George Martin has since stated that this is the finest album he ever produced. Really? He thinks that this is better than Abbey Road. He does. And that's his favorite Beatles album that he produced. Well, you know, and he produced them nothing all. Nothing holds up to this. <laughs> wow. So that I saw that quote thrown around a ton. And then when I dug in, it was a quote pulled from a book he wrote in 1978. So he obviously worked on a lot more stuff since then. And who knows if he ever changed his opinion. But at one point, he said that this was a finer album than anything else he's done. Uh, you know, who knows what that means <laughs> or how he... Uh, comes up with that rating system but yeah this is better than the beatles you hear to hear i would agree man you you were like <laughs> lukewarm on this album and it's better than the beatles <laughs> yeah this all adds up in my mind wow after that very long bio and tons of information let's cleanse the palate with another song shall we we shall we're gonna flip the record side b and hear a paul winter composition Whole Earth Chant. This is Side B, Track 1.
somewhere between a Ren Fair and a hoedown, the Paul Winter story. <laughs> yeah, that's what I, I just said. I, I looked at, I, it started to sound Ren Fairy, and I looked at Jeremy and he said, I felt that. <laughs> yeah, I might put it below Abbey Road now. Come to think of it. <laughs> Only Abbey Road. It's still better than all the other Beatles records. I I can't say. I don't. <laughs> that's too much thought about the Beatles that I just don't want to have right now. <laughs> yeah, there's been enough for this episode already for Jeremy. Yeah, I'm stressed. <laughs> that was a cool piece, though. It, it took a few different turns. Yeah. Proggy. And for me, every time they make one of these turns, it still feels natural. Like, there's there's bands that try and incorporate a lot of stuff, and they make these weird, hard turns, and it all kind of seems pasted together like it doesn't fit. But this group just flows. I love it. The Paul Winter Consort. Mm-hmm. Well, where to from here, Sean? Well, there's just a little bit more bio to cover. Talk about what Paul Winter did after this and some of the other players. And that'll be about the end of the episode. So let's, let's do it. In 1968, we're going back just a little bit first. Paul Winter attended a lecture on whale songs done by Dr. Roger Payne. Roger would go on to release the hit album Songs of the Humpback Whale in 1970. The album and lectures raised awareness by proving whales communicated via complex patterns of sound that fit the definition of a song. Paul was deeply inspired by this experience and has since spent the majority of his life championing environmentalist causes, particularly ones related to the conservation of whales and wolves. By recruiting them to the CIA. Exactly. A foolproof plan. <laughs> There's value if they're an asset. You know, we can't hunt whales that are helping out our government. Oh. That's some galaxy brain thinking right there. Yeah. I wonder if Paul Winter has ever worked with Paul Watson. Who's that? He's like the whale wars guy. He's, he's an environmentalist, conservationist. Uh... It's entirely possible. Paul has done just an absurd amount of work in this field. Tons of concerts, and uh, he was part of experiments to try and communicate with whales, where he was playing his saxophone to the whales and trying to harmonize with them. He's done whaling protest with Greenpeace. Uh, he's done it all. He's all over the place. He's out there. Very cool. And... In addition to being a pioneer of world music, as we said, Paul is also considered one of the founders of Earth Music. He's released many albums mixing nature soundscapes with instruments, often where the playing is improvised to fit the wild sounds. So you think back to the environments episode and also think about, you know, your childhood when your parents took you to Target or something and there was that little kiosk with all the buttons with pictures of animals and you hit it and hear some like smooth saxophone mixed with whale sounds and shit. Paul, Paul was on the cutting edge of that. Just brought back a vivid memory. Mm-hmm. And if you were like little Sean, you often try to convince your parents to just leave you at the kiosk for the next few aisles so you could just have fun with the animal sounds instead of being bored. Oh, my parents definitely left me there. Hell yeah. I would just sit there hitting all the different buttons and they would just continue shopping and come back later. It's better than literally anything else that was going to happen in that place, so yeah. hell yeah. So we mentioned the other players on this record. After this album, Ralph Towner, Colin Walcott, and Paul McCandless left to form the supergroup Oregon. They released a series of excellent recordings on Vanguard and have gone on to release over 30 total albums. Did we mention them once before? Uh, I believe they have come up before. These guys are pretty important players in the jazz world i was thinking maybe on our weather report episode yes we talked about oregon and i actually i believe i talked about this record specifically at the end talking about like similar uh jazz fusion world music kind of things okay yes things were starting to ring some bells yeah yeah definitely those three guys have also recorded extensively as solo artists and collaborators with various other players and they were major figures in the contemporary jazz scene of the 70s and 80s, most notably represented by labels like ECM. 
So when people look back on this record, it's it's foundational for a lot of things and features players who are considered, you know, absolute legends of their field at this point, who at the time were kind of more small time up and comers. There's a lot of notable things going on in relation to this album. Well, Sean, my question for you at this point is, did you bring a list of recommended similar albums and are they all going to be from 1972 for this month of October, 2022? Uh, only one of them is from 1972, but I did come up with a short list of recommended albums. Lay it on us. First one had to do it for Jeremy. I would recommend Jimmy Spheris, Isle of View from 1971. Yep. Yep. Gotta do it. It's my most recommended album. Jeremy made fun of me once for recommending Jimmy Spheris too much, and now I'm just going to double down on that. That that was our first episode, 150 episodes ago. This is episode 150, by the way, our first episode of season four. Yeah, 150 minus any repeats or any of the premium episodes. Yeah, which maybe you might be seeing a different number than that, but trust us, this is episode 150. <laughs> It's essential that you trust us on this. Yes. All right, Sean, what else? Second recommendation is one that we've already mentioned a couple times and is from 1972, Beaver and Krause's All Good Men. You check out the episode, check out the music, and Bernie Krause went on to do a lot of experimenting, mixing music, and environmental soundscapes, just like Paul Winter. Yeah. So we have an episode on the Jimmy Spheris album you recommended. We have an episode on the Beaver and Kraus one you recommended. What's your third one? Is it another album we've covered? It's not. But I couldn't remember if I've already recommended it previously. I may have. I don't know. But this third recommendation is Jade Warrior Floating World from 1974. Another record that is often cited as foundational for the New Age movement and has a lot of ties to kind of progressive rock while also drawing influence from various world music genres. So I think there's a lot of musical similarities to what's going on here and is just an all around great record that I highly recommend. I don't think you've recommended that one before, but let me go back and listen to all 149 <laughs> episodes before this and see. Please do. I would appreciate it. I think probably what you're thinking of, Sean, is when I was visiting uh, just a couple weeks ago, I, I think I saw that album in your collection and was like, what is this? And you told me all about it. Uh, I think you're on to something there. It's starting to make sense. As Sean would say, it's entirely possible. <laughs> it is entirely possible. Fantastic, Sean. Jeremy, would you agree that it's true that it's entirely possible? <laughs> true <laughs> well on that note that's all the information i have and you've probably heard enough information this episode anyways so how about we go out on a final track yeah what do you have for us we're gonna hear the closing track from the album side b track for minui which means midnight and is a track that is adapted from an african traditional folk song very cool well excellent First selection dating back to 1972 for this season, Sean. As we mentioned at the top, we'll be covering albums from the year 1972, 50 years ago, all throughout the month of October 2022 here on I'd Buy That for a Dollar. We'll have more to talk about regarding 1972 as we go through these, but I think it's time to leave the people with this episode Thank you for listening. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles, and it feels uh, good to shake the rust off. And I'm Sean Hartman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>